Hello and welcome to Gifts of the Weird. I am very happy to have with me the author of Wild Soul Runes, Reawakening the Ancestral Feminine, Laura Valeda Vesta. Uh, Laura is an artist, an author, a witch, an educator. She teaches the Wild Soul School, focusing on folk magic, ancestral connection, self-initiation, and ritual practice. She is the author of The Moon Divas Guidebook and The Moon Divas Oracle. Laura. <laughs> Welcome to Gifts of the Weird. I'm so ha- happy to have you with me. Oh, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you very much. This is really neat for me because uh, I was contacted by Wiser to kind of read a preview copy of the book and say, hey, what do you think about this? Because I do a lot of work with runes. And I was thrilled because this book is not just a basic introduction to rune book. And I love all of those books, but we're have, we have so many. It's great because this takes us in a whole another direction of learning and connecting with runes that I've been working with uh, on my own and teaching with folks. And when I do classes and, and, and talk online about these things that I just really love this. So thanks for writing this book. Thanks for bringing it for us. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks for receiving it. It makes me really happy. Yeah. How long did it take you to finally get to be able to put it down into words and chapters and uh, kind of what was that process like? Oh my goodness. Um, (laughs) Well, the book actually began as I was a a PhD student briefly um, at the California Institute for Integral Studies. And so I I wrote a paper um, and the version of the paper is in the book about um, the feminine origin of the runes. And I, I had to leave that study due to disability and moved into a period in my life that was really difficult, very challenging. I became extremely ill. And it was during that time that I started working in a small gnosis group at my school with each of the runes, creating a practice every week, making art using inquiry, and then coming together and talking about it. I had quite a bit of background in rune work and education, but I really wanted to develop relationships with the runes as beings rather than, oh, this is a, a divination tool I use. And, mm-hmm. and that process accumulated into what is a large portion of the book. That practice became the book. And then later that year, that was 2017, I taught a class called Ancestral Connection. And that just dovetailed so nicely into the Gnosis-based rune work because there is, there is again, this common thread of relationship between the two. So it really was this unfolding, but it took, I mean, that was... It was 2016 when I became ill, 2015 when I first wrote the paper. So it's been a little bit, about five years to bring it into fruition. That sounds like quite a journey for sure. And a lot of different events that help bring you to be able to do that. And uh, I know writing a book is not easy and it takes a lot of thought and work and extra time. So uh, I'm sure that was (laughs) quite a process with all of the other the other things that you were facing at the time. Uh, how did you get to to know runes or how did you get interested in them uh, in the first place? So what's kind of your background with runes and the mythology and Norse paganism, Norse witchcraft, that type of stuff? Well, I've always, I've always been magical. I grew up in a very rural environment in um, Southern Oregon. My grandfather is from Norway. I actually have uh 
Norwegian on both sides of my family, but my maternal grandfather is from Norway. And my mom had a, a pendant that she brought back from Bergen when she was 18 and it had runes on it. It was a pewter pendant on one side, there's a spinning wheel and on the, the other side there were runes and I didn't know what they were. But I, I felt so drawn to them. And I wore that pendant constantly in high school. And I pretty much absconded with it when I went to college and finally had a friend, a, a language student, translate it for me. And it says something pretty benign, like Lake River Mountain, Norway. But, um, but I realize now, of course, that it was the runes that were calling to me on that pendant. And It wasn't until much later and a really winding journey through a lot of different spiritual paths, um, like so many people of European descent, um, you you know, there's just, it's not an easy thing to find what is calling to you. You just know you're being called. And I saw it here and there. I saw it in in Wicca and I saw it in, um, you know, some other pretty appropriative paths and And then I encountered the runes and rune study when I was, oh gosh, this was not even that long ago. This was maybe 2013 and really started a dedicated practice with a community and it just broke things open for me. And I realized that I had had all of this attraction to myth, all of the relationship with the stories growing up, they were in me already. And so it was really like being awakened rather mm-hmm. than, um, you know, seeing something new. And, and that was, that became the full focus of my path really for the ever since. That's really cool. And I think that happens to a lot of people. Sometimes it just seems like kind of out of the blue that someone suddenly says, oh, you know, I'm really attracted to runes all of a sudden. I don't know why. And I think it's that awakening within them. Um, and I love this, the way that you describe runes as being beings because, and the way, and it's also kind of how I connect with them and how I view them or see them and how they reveal themselves to me is that they are not just symbols on a stone or a piece of wood or a piece of paper or something. They are they're from weird. They're from the web of weird. They're from the universe and they kind of interact and weave themselves into us. And I think that's such a cool way that they decide to finally say, Hey, here's a way that you can kind of connect with me. And it's through these symbols (laughs) and this mythology. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with that. And I, I've met so many people on this path now who've had these really um, synergistic experiences with runes, like mine in childhood, seeing them, not knowing what they were, but recognizing them. And and certainly um, many people have come to me, shown me, you know, tattoos got that they didn't even know what they were putting on their body, but they they later found out that it was a rune and or that they uh, were drawing runes, you know, in making them in their art before they even knew what they were. And I feel like this deep symbolic vibrational language of weird is constantly speaking to us. And this is just one of the many ways that it can communicate with us. And for some people, we are really attuned to that language and, and it lives inside of us, which I think is so lovely and wonderful. When you see, when you see the runes for the first time, then you start to notice that they are literally everywhere and in everything. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And it's really cool because they do connect with so much of our natural being, for instance, like Dagas or Soelo, you know, Dagas being the morning and the daytime and Soelo connecting to Sunna and the sun and soul. Uh, it's just, they really, they really do shine in so many ways for us, don't they? Yes, absolutely. They do. They have totally transformed my life in really complex and beautiful ways. Well, uh, early in your book, you, you kind of, you go right to the heart. (laughs) You don't even mince words by, by just um, starting to connect with them as ancestral beings and connected to the desir and um, those, those, connections through um, the universe. How how did that kind of reveal itself to you? And what does that mean so that people can say, oh, I kind of connect with that or, or will understand because it's kind of a different way than most people will view runes, which is they do kind of just say, oh, they're divination symbols and I'll do divination with them. And there's a whole other aspect of, of magic and connecting to them and as protective symbols and, and through mythology. So, how, how how do they kind of what what kind of explain to our our listeners how they connect how how you're connecting with them and then of course um, they'll have to read more in the book. <laughs> <laughs> so the you know the story that we hear about the runes with Odin um, that was of course the origin story that I first and most quickly attuned to and. Um, But I realized that uh, the source wisdom that Odin was drawing from, it wasn't out of nowhere. It was from somewhere. And in exploring that source, exploring the well of the Norns, exploring Earth, and really deepening into that concept of, of weird and origin, I started to find all of these threads of the feminine. And one of the things about the you know, the Northern European cosmology is that it tends to be very um, weighted with the masculine. That's one of the, and of course, I'm speaking of these as qualities. This is not men and women. These are just qualities that are constantly in interplay. And so if we look at the myth as a formula, we've got this really incredible story of sacrifice and um, an acquisition through what could be seen as a partnership between the masculine and the feminine. And then tracing that into so many of the stories about the Desir. Um, and of course, the Norns being not just the Norns that are mentioned in the poetic Ada, but the, you know, there were little Norns too, like small Norns <laughs> that we <laughs> that we all could have access to. And starting to investigate these mystery figures in relationship to the runes and deepening my connection with them so that I could come into a, a balanced sensibility around the runes, that really transformed my path. So I do in the book talk about my path only. That is my intention is just to share this is what worked for me. These are some of the tools that have been helpful for me in this journey I'm not ever prescriptive. I think everyone has to find their own way with this because there isn't an unbroken lineage tradition. We are all in a process of discovery. And let's face it, ancestral animist traditions are creative. 
they are happening in real time in relationship with everything around them. So um, there is a that's why there's so much emphasis on gnosis for me because I realized a lot of the writing that I was encountering around the runes was either repeating kind of the same thing over and over again or was inventive, which there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But I realized that I too could come into relationship and see what was being spoken to me. And that's my real intention with this work is to connect people with the earth, with each other, with their own lineages, and with these beings so that they can listen to what's being asked of them. I really love that because I have a very similar thought process of how that happens in a lot about Gnosis because over the last thousand years, so much has changed in the way that we interact with the earth, the way, the way we interact with spirit, the way we interact with the gods, the the local spirit. And yeah, I would think that the runes are not going to be stuck in wagon wheels in the past. They're going to teach us how to interact with cars and telephones and Facebook <laughs> and just be really in tune with who we are today and who we are now and how we interact with the spirit. And I'm hoping that the runes will also in- awaken a lot of people to be more connected to the nature and the spirit and to help us be a healing force to do the, or to do our part as modern people to a- help um, mitigate some of the footprint that uh, technology and <laughs> all of that is, has uh, done to scar the planet. Yes, absolutely. That's my hope too. And I think that the runes having this history, they are um, one of the things I talk about in the book is the relationship of the runes to prehistory, prehistoric writing and um, and pre-runic script. And then also the sacred script of old European civilization prior to the Indo-European invasions. If you look at the record of the sacred script, there are runes. There's a lot of runes. And then there's a lot of runes that maybe we've never seen before if we want to call them all runes. And I think that encoded in that, there is a wisdom of how to live on this earth, how to be in good relationship, and how to support all life. And that is Um, something that our ancient ancestors knew quite a bit about and something that we seem to struggle with in, um, I live in North America, so in modern culture today, but the runes have have struck me as very uh, adaptive and simultaneously encoded within them is all of this really ancient wisdom. So they're wonderful beings to work with for this time. And I agree with you. I think that they have great potential for helping us negotiate some of what we're encountering right now on the planet. You, you mentioned earlier about connect, uh, how Odin uh, worked with the Norns and reached into or the connection to the well of Earth. And I really love how you, you talked about that and uh, about that meditation that Odin was on. And one of the things that you, you, you mentioned is that he reached out to weird and grabbed some of the runes. <laughs> and that's probably a very <laughs> controversial, perhaps uh, <laughs> way of thinking, but it makes so much sense because we've seen just from the elder Futhark to the Anglo-Saxon, how they, how runes were added 
and then how they were uh, reduced for the younger Futhark used by the Icelandic and, and Scandinavian people later towards the 10th and 9th and 10th centuries. What do you think that means, that there may be more runes that we're interacting with that we haven't developed symbols for, or that the symbols are out there, but we just haven't brought them into modern usage? Uh, can you explain a little bit more about that? Because that's a very interesting topic. Mm, I love that topic too. Um, <laughs> in my in my work with others on this path, I do facilitate classes and uh, gnosis experiences where folks are just invited to share, you know, uh, engage in ritual and inquiry independently, and then come together and share. And it is incredible how many people have dreams or visions of other runes. And one of the things that writing has done is it kind of uh, codifies everything, right? Like that's the whole basis of historical religion is that it is written down. That is the differentiation between historical and non-historical faith. And what we know about um, our ancestral traditions is not everything was written down. And in fact, when I really started to delve into why we know about the runes we do know, um, even the written sources are uh, kind of sketchy. You know, they were the, the original copies of several of them were destroyed. And what we have is like a transcription and we don't know how authentic that is. And of course, we're missing the context for everything. Mm -hmm. So, um, and again, looking at, I mean, the threads that we have from these pre-Christian traditions are, are they're just really filaments. They're like so sparse. What we know was that at one point in time, there was a comprehensive tapestry that was whole and complete. And what we have right now is, is just these, these threads that have been preserved in writing, thank goodness. But the tapestry itself was rent pretty well by, you know, centuries of oppression and intentional destruction. So why wouldn't we have lost some things in that? And why wouldn't there be new things coming in? I mean, when I look at the, the history of, of some of the pagan traditions, it was ebb and flow and warp and woof. And mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it was very nonlinear. And I think that opening ourselves, and certainly my academic brain has benefited from uh, the practice of opening myself to possibility that not everything has to be codified, written down, transcribed in order for it to be real and true. And we have enough evidence of the transformation of the runes and also evidence of things that we don't understand with regard to the runes, rune scripts that we have not been able to translate, you know, um, archaeological evidence that hasn't even been found yet. So opening ourselves to the possibility that we don't know everything and allowing for the direct communication to come in, I think, has really enriched my path. And I, I'm still a big believer in research. I think having quality information and foundation is important, but knowing that that, that is a very modern overlay on something that was not at all you know, written down. It was mm -hmm. not at all recorded. And in a lot of ways, it wasn't even a part of practice in times past because so many people didn't have access to any kind of archaeological research or research <laughs> at all, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, 
because I've sometimes brought this up to some people who who say, oh, yeah, you know, everything we need to know is in the rune poems. That's what you need to stick with is exactly what was in the rune poems. And I'm like, but but when those were even composed, even if we have them exactly as they were composed in the 8th and ninth centuries, those people weren't concerned about what someone was doing a thousand years before them. Yes. They were just interacting with the runes at the time or interacting with spirituality at the time for them then. And so that's kind of made me wonder, and I'd like to ask you if you, how you think about this wild notion that I have that perhaps a lot of the evidence, I guess we could say, of the practices and things not being written down might have been purposeful so that we can have that latitude to explore them and integrate with them as we are now, rather than being confined to this is how we should because it's what was done a thousand years ago. Yes, I love that so much. That is, I and I fully agree with that. I think that it is an opportunity. And it's an opportunity because we also don't live in those places. Well, I don't live in those places. I don't live in the lands of my ancestors. I have a lot. We have a lot of ancestors now. They Mm -hmm. come from many different places. We have to learn to live where we are now, you know, in respectful communion with the peoples of the land where we live now, with, you know, direct relationship with where we live now. What will come through when we are intentional about our relationships currently is going to be very different from someone who, you know, lived in the same village as the five generations before them and, you know, had no context for the world outside of that. Mm -hmm. Of course, it would be a different kind of practice. So I do think that there's an opportunity here. And that being flexible and responsive to what is in front of us right now. Um, And again, that that privileging of written information over gnosis or over oral transmission, that actually is a result of religious supremacy. And we have to remember that. That comes from the privileging of historical religion over lived experience. And, And that doesn't have a very positive history, that perspective. So it doesn't mean that we can't see that as, as you know, what's written down as good and true and informational as well. But that binary of privileging one or the, over the other, which occurs everywhere, is really problematic. And it keeps people from their relationship, which to me is the essence of this path. It's about relationship. I love how you said that. That's so great. Yes. And so that like, kind of leads us into like the bulk of this book is about how there's about a way, not how, not the only way, but <laughs> um, a way of connecting with runes and the runic energies, I should say, and and how that goes. So you go through the Anglo-Saxon runes. And I believe it's the 29, right? Not 33. Yeah, 33. I, I have 33. 33. Yeah. yeah. And you take each one and translate the rune poems based on your experiences. And that's really interesting. What what was kind of the impetus to do that as opposed to taking a new modern translation or going with what other people had already had already used for the translations that you use? How, how does that express itself through you? And what, what a work to do. Yes. <laughs> So you work with the runes, so you know how bossy they can be sometimes, yes. right? Yes. So uh, that I was told 
to do. And um, it started actually with looking up one word. I looked up Korth and realized that what I had been told Korth meant, one of the Anglo-Northumbrian runes, what it meant was very different from what the word itself was translated as. And I then got curious. I was like, well, you know, translation is so... (laughs) And anyone who's translated anything, which I hadn't up until this book. So my translations are pretty awful, but I leave them as in their raw state for a reason, because I want everyone to try their own translations Mm -hmm. and have their own interpretations because you realize how subjective the entire field of translating is, especially because we're so far removed from the cultural context. Mm -hmm. And yet I learned so much. One, I learned about the the languages and learned about the roots, you know, because we have, of course, our modern English is descended from Old Anglo-Saxon and, and has a lot of other, you know, Germanic influence. There's s- such richness to be gained in thinking about the words we're speaking now and their relationship to the past. But really, I ended up with all of those translations because the runes told me to. They said, you need to look at this again with your own fresh eyes and do the plotting work of word-for-word translation and see what it means to you now. And I've continued that work with other texts. Um, I've been working with uh, some Anglo-Saxon texts from the Lechnunga and from um, from the Poetic Eda as well. And it's it's really opened my eyes to what's possible for us when we do our own work rather than relying on other people. And in order to be spiritually sovereign, I think that we can't just rely on you know, most of the translations that are in the rune books now are not contemporary. They're, they're actually from the 19th century because they're in the public domain. And so they're very fanciful, those translations, and quite beautiful. I have them in this book. But they're also of a time and have a specific lens. And when you start to see that, and then you, you begin to delve into the language itself and realize that there's so much texture there, even without knowledge of grammar, even without the cultural context, there's just a tremendous amount to be learned. So yeah, it was a lot of work, <laughs> <laughs> but I would do it again. Absolutely. And I probably will, to be honest with you, go back at some point and, and look at them again, because I learned so much in the process as well. And uh, my first translations were very different from my later ones. So I'm, it's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. And well, here's my, here's my fresh air, Terry Gross style question, which is kind of a technical question. When you did the translations, did you do for each rune? Did you do all three poems or did you go through like one poem at a time so you could stay in the, the language mind space and translate the whole thing? And then like Anglo-Saxon rune poem, you translated all of it and then go on to the Icelandic and then on to the Norwegian. Or did you do like, okay, I'm going to do Fehu today. So I'll do the Anglo-Saxon, the Icelandic and the Norwegian and then pull that out. Just my curiosity <laughs> as to yeah. how you did that. <laughs> no, that's a great question. That's I, I used it as part of the, the practice. So I did all of the rune poems in the different languages over the course of a week of spending time with that particular rune. Um, 
And that, that was really useful actually to see them side by side. And of course, not all of the runes have rune poems, the, mm-hmm. but um, to see the, the poems side by side and to look at the languages side by side as well and to find the parallels in there was, that was really powerful too. It sounds like it. That is an interesting way. Yeah. I just wasn't sure if you would try to get into the mind space of the language uh, or do it in the, as the per room. So interesting. One of the things that you, you kind of, you talk about before going into the, the weeks and the study, and we'll, we'll kind of talk about that, but it's setting up a rune altar briefly. And again, people can get the book, Wild Soul Runes, wiser books. <laughs> what does a personal rune altar look like? Or what can it look like? What's a way that it can look like? Because again, we're not, like you said, we're not prescriptive, but um, what does that mean to you? Mm, well, I like to think of it, an altar. A long time ago, someone said an altar is the seat of spirit. So it just helps me to have a point of focus. I'm a very visual person, and um, certainly the runes seem to me to be responsive to tactile, tangible, visual um, form. So I like to have an illustration of the rune that I'm working with and maybe some symbols to go along with the rune. And this was very helpful to me when I was first engaging with the runes and didn't know a lot about them. I could go in and start to look at the rune poems and think about the symbols for each and then create an altar visually to work with over the course of, I mean, you could do it for any amount of time, but I find a week is is useful for me. And then I like to spend time with the rune there as if it were a person, um, feed it, give it something to drink, hang out, sing songs, you know, and listen and see what the rune has to say. So the altar can look like anything, but for me, I have altars all over my house, but I have a, a hearth in my living room that is whatever spiritual work I'm doing. That is the, the central focus of it because I see it all the time. I'm always with it. So the main thing about a rune altar for me is that it be visible so that I'm engaging with it on a regular basis. Like I said, as if it were a person that I'm living with. Very, very nice. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering, because you have so many great questions to go with your inquiry, like your inquiry for the rune uh, as you're doing your, your week study. Do you have like a process where you or do you kind of think of like, okay, on this day, I'm just going to sit and maybe draw the runes for an hour or half an hour or 15 minutes. I mean, let's work up slowly, right? <laughs> Overwhelm <Yes>. somebody. <laughs> And, and I really do think, I really agree with you, drawing or even intoning or chanting the rune is so powerful, isn't it? Yes. Because I, I, sometimes I just, when I teach a rune class, I'll talk about the rune and I'll talk about basic meanings and things. And then I'll have the whole group intone it with me. So like mm-hmm. with Fehu, we'll go Fehu, and then we'll all do it together like three times. And, you know, my hair stands up on yeah. my arms because it's just so, it's so powering. <laughs> So how do you think that one one might be able to progress? Because a lot of times I think people kind of get scared. I I would. I got scared. I'm thinking, what am I going to do for a week, <laughs> you know, uh, going through this process? So what, what are some exercises or some things someone might consider? So I, prior to rune study, I studied ritual for a long time. So I'm a big lover of, of using ritual as a container for any sort of work. So, and, and micro rituals, because I, 
I have an energetically limited disability. So I don't have a lot of time in the day that I can be spending engaging in activity. So I recommend 10 minutes. Actually, I'd like your 15 minute suggestion because it's keeping it really achievable and bite-sized means that you are able to give that dedicated focus. If I say 10 minutes, I can do almost anything for 10 minutes, even if I'm resistant, which we could have a whole conversation about spiritual resistance, right? (laughs) 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 So I, and then I front load my practice. I do it first. So first thing in the morning, like the reason that there's all the inquiry questions is because I create a writing practice for myself every day where I'm writing in communication with a divinity, an ancestor, sometimes a rune. And I I use the epistolary form. So I write a letter every morning with a candle and a cup of coffee. and, um, And then I let them write back to me. And that's a great way to start to listen, to get information, to just allow, even if it feels kind of silly, if you're new to automatic writing, um, but to allow information to start to come through you and, and then listening for what they say, because like I said, they can be rather bossy mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you may start to feel what they want from you specifically, which might not look like the exercises in the book. Like if folks showed up to a practice and all they did was listen and be responsive to what was being asked of them, that would, I would be so happy with that because I feel like that is real spirit work. And, and so, yeah, just keeping it really achievable, making a commitment to that tiny little bit of time and having listening be your priority. And maybe they, maybe they do, they want you to sing or make art or, or dance. Um, I feel like, so much of this work is embodied. It is not necessarily intellectual. It really is from a time where folks were so much more in their bodies than they are now. So, which is why when you sang Feu just now, I got goosebumps all over because I feel like <laughs> that's what's meant to be done with the runes. They um, are meant I, to be sung. I agree. Yes, I love it. And uh, the first glance when I went through just the, how short or you know, like Mana's inquiry, rune poem, rune poem, rune poem. I was like, I was kind of thrown off. I was like, wait a second, isn't there more? What? what? I have to sit and contemplate and think. So it kind of took me going back to Wild Soul Runes. And looking at the book again, as I was prepping to speak with you about this, to think, oh, there's, wow, this is really interesting because you're not saying do this, do this, do this, do this. This is how you connect with the runes. It's very much leaving it up for each of us as a reader to create our own relationship and our own meditation practice with the rune. And I love that. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Yeah, that... That comes from, I mean, I think so many of us on this path have been burned spiritually by, by the leader, by the, the person who says that they, they know how to do it and then they want to show you how, um, usually for a large fee. And, and I just feel like this work lives in all of us. It is part of us. It is inside of our DNA. And I'm not saying that it's exclusive to any one person's DNA or any Mm -hmm. branch of the human tree. I'm saying that animist earth-based ancestral connection is within all of us. And it's really about finding your way. And it's so hard for people because we're in a culture that says spiritual authority is the way. 
And, you know, people want answers. And I understand that. But I've found nothing but questions <laughs> <laughs> on this path. So the practice is really about living into the questions and and loving whatever comes. Yeah, I, I, I really agree with you. And, and just so that people don't think that there isn't any kind of guidance, you do have a reflection section after each third of the runes. So every 11 runes, which was also a little bit different for me because I, I, I pretty much exclusively work with the Elder Futh art. So I'm used to the eights. Mm-hmm. When we're up here and I'm like, what? Thirds? Wait a second. Why, <laughs> why, why, why are we doing this? And then I'm like, oh, that's right. We have all the way up to 33. So this is going to be interesting for me because it's going to probably push me into looking at those extra nine runes in a different way because I've really been drawn myself to the, to the 24. And that's where I've been developing and, and growing with them. So this might be a call to say, hey, Hello, knock, knock, knock. We have more <laughs> here to look at. <laughs> so that's that's exciting. So and, and I love that you have these little reflections here to kind of go back over those 11 weeks and oh, uh, connect. I wanted to incorporate that ancestral information. Um, you know, this idea of when we're working with the runes, we are only bolstered by doing work with our ancestors as well. Whether or not our ancestors were people from cultures that we see, you know, like the Anglo-Saxon or the the Norse, it doesn't matter because our the runes are everywhere. They are everywhere. Mm-hmm. And whatever we call them, the language of symbol is a human universal. So I think working with the ancestors has tremendously helped my rune practice. I don't really know where I would be without them. And then deepening into that relationship with the runes has only helped my ancestor work too. So I, I see them as very complimentary. Yeah. And I really love that you do engage the, the ancestral work, the animism with our planet and the earth energies. It's a really nice to connect to that connection with the rune energy and those, those parts that they, they form together. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> yeah, oh, and I really love that the the way that this was the way that you bring this together because uh, it is such a different way of approaching runes, and I and I'm really hoping that a lot of people will get a hold of this and for a second just look at them beyond the role of divination because that's just one part that they speak to us. I think. Yes, yes. I mean, I definitely use runes for divination, and I have. In the book, I talk about my personal divination practice, which is actually rune web creation, creating a a snapshot of the web of weird using uh, runes in ceremony. But I, I do think that just like any other spiritual tool, approaching it for use first, uh, that's, you know, that's a very Western mindset, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think, and that's how I, of course, came to the runes. I didn't know that they were beings. I didn't know. And I had to work with them to, to start to, to hear them. And I think that that is how a lot of people come into relationship with the runes. That's certainly how a lot of people have found me in my work is they want to use runes for divination, but you start to crack the door and talk to them and so much else comes forward. And now they're kin. They are, you know, people. I I used to use the word people because it's easy for me, but they are entities and, and they're always 
they're always with me and they're constantly communicating with me. And I think that when we think of divination as communication, then of course it just cracks wide open, right? I can look out the window and see a, a twig and it is in the shape of lagus. Right now I'm actually looking at one that's in the shape of Augies. (laughs) um, And, and there's a message in there for me and I can start to, to really be in a dynamic divinatory relationship. That's not just limited to rune casting. Then when I see them everywhere, that's a great thing. And the more we get to know the runes, the more we do see them in the wild, as you, as we might say (laughs) out, (laughs) out and about, isn't it? Yes, that's very true. They're everywhere and in everything. And um, and that's one of the things that I really love about them is feeling it's just another way for the world to communicate with us. You know, there's so many ways. I, um, I go out in my garden and the wind blows and the leaves shake and certain plants catch my eye and, and want my attention. And um, and being responsive to that and living with that feels so good. It, it does. It, it really is a great way when things start coming together like that. I love to also go out and have the rune speak to me through those natural ways. So uh, that's really great. So Laura, what are some ways that people can connect to you outside of the book? I mean, do you do public classes? Is that something we could talk about? I do. Sure. Yes. I have a a school called the Wild Soul School. Um, And I offer a lot of classes there. Most of them are by donation. So there's no paywall for most of the classes. And I just ask people to, I, I have a Patreon community too that supports the work. That's how I'm able to offer classes by donation. I just concluded a Wild Soul Runes class, a six-week class, and then we're going to be moving into <laughs> a 33-week community Gnosis practice um, that will be hosted by a number of people who took that class. So that's going to be coming up in September. And then I have a website where everything is supposedly consolidated. <laughs> <laughs> That's laravesta.co. But and I love I love hearing from people. So if anyone has any questions, you can reach out to me by my website on Patreon or through my school. You can come over and check out any of those offerings. And like I said, most are are very accessible. So that sounds marvelous. I have a question about so once once a course starts, for instance, the 33 week course, could someone drop in at any point? Or is it better to start at Fehu? I am super nonlinear. So almost every, I not all of my classes because like the wild soul runes class was, um, was, you know, six weeks, and people dropped in a, a little late in that. But for the most part, folks wanted to be there from the beginning. But the Gnosis groups are very nonlinear. And that's because I can't sustain a 33-week practice without breaks um, just because of my disability. So I am very happy to have people drop in and move out as they need to. I think that we can um, do this Gnosis work longitudinally together over years even and and work our way through the process as our life permits so yes all folks are welcome to be nonlinear with me wonderful <laughs> and of course if there is something that's better um, approached from a linear they can always check with you first 
Yes. Yeah, for sure. And most of the classes that would have that requirement, it, it would say in the introduction, you know, or you would know because there would, would be a paywall. So. Oh, well, this is great. Well, I look forward to checking out those classes and hopefully dropping in on them because it sounds wonderful. I didn't realize that aspect of it. I'm really excited to share that. So, uh, Laura, is there anything else that uh, we should share before we close up for the for the period? Mm, well, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I've loved it so much. And I think that the only thing that I would end with is, is just find... For, your, for all the listeners, find your path, find your way. It exists, I promise you, and it's in you. You only have to listen. That's amazing, and, and it's so true. And I love looking inward for our path. Laura, thank you so much for joining us on the program. I really loved speaking with you and your book, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you. I look forward to that too. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. Please have a look at the show notes for links and, well, notes. Podcast is available from Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and other podcast catchers. Feedback and reviews are greatly appreciated. Please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at weirdgifts1 and on Facebook at at giftsoftheweird and email me at giftsoftheweird.com. Thanks and have a great day.